Brian McClanahan Show, episode 268. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page at Brian McClanahan, where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media buttons at my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the Brian McClanahan Show by going to McClanahanAcademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get a free class when you do so, and I have classes there for purchase. It's a great way to support the show and get something for it. You can also support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies or bucks or whatever you got my way. Help keep these lights on. Help keep the podcast going. Or you can go to anchor.fm. There's a way to support the show there as well. You can also leave a message if you'd like to maybe get on the show. Ask a question. Want me to talk about what you want me to talk about? Go to anchor.fm, look for The Brian McClanahan Show, and there's a way that you can click on a button and record a message, and I can include that in the podcast. So, a lot of great ways to support the show, a lot of great ways to contact me. Also, get your Brian McClanahan Show gear. Just go to that brianmcclanahan.com, click on that shop tab at the top, and you can get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. I also have a new shirt, Think Locally, Act Locally. It's a great way to get the message out. It doesn't have my name on it or anything. It just says, think locally, act locally. So if you're just interested in the message, you can do that as well. And always, please rate this podcast wherever you listen to it. I know a lot of y'all listen to it on multiple platforms. So wherever you listen to this podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, please rate the show and share it around. Let people know how awesome it is. It's how we expand the audience. Okay. Let's talk about the topic of the day. This is a listener-generated episode. It's an article that I hadn't seen now, it just came out um, yesterday, in fact, um, and it's by uh, Michael Vlahos, and it's the title is Civil War Begins When the Constitutional Order Breaks Down. So I've talked about are we heading for a civil war. I've done that a couple of times on this particular show, but I want to get into this because it's a little different position. It's essentially um, war is inevitable in the American system. Now, he's, oper- he's going to give you a definition of civil war, which I disagree with. Um, well, actually, I do agree with it, but he, he, putting it within the American context, I disagree with it. Okay, so I do agree with what he's saying about a civil war. But what I don't agree with is how he frames that within the American context. You see, it operates from a position, and I've discussed this before on this show. It operates from a position, a belief, that... An act of independence has to lead to war. It doesn't. There were two situations in the United States where we had independence movements, and neither one had to lead to bloodshed, unless the authority, which was at one time the ruling authority, decides it wants to fight. But you see, the American system of self-determination should prevent that if we fundamentally believed in it. And so I'm going to, there's a couple things he says at the end too that just kind of shake my head at when you look at what's happened. Now, he's looking at this from a historical standpoint, um, from what's happened before. So if 
If you say, well, history is a predictive tool, but it's not. History is never a predictive tool. It is a guide. And you can say, well, people did this, but the one of the reasons why we study history is not to make us cleverer for next time, but to make us wiser forever. As Lord Acton once said, to make us wiser forever. So if we're studying history and saying, okay, we made a mistake here, we made a mistake here, why would we repeat what's been done before if we know that there are other ways to do it? You cannot predict with history because people can make decisions not based on a past event, right? So we know some things. I mean, for example, we know inevitably what uh, certain political systems do because they have to because of human nature. Um, now, if you got everyone to buy into something, I guess you could say things would change, but that's not going to happen. So when it comes to uh, the belief in self-determination, I guess you could say the same thing. We get everybody to believe in self-determination, things won't happen. Maybe it would. Maybe we have to go down the path of violence if you look at some of these particular positions. I just don't necessarily buy that. So let's start with this piece. Um, it's, it's in the American Conservative. Uh, um, and I don't know some of it's a little disappointing to me because that is the American Conservative. But they've been, they've been moving down a different direction, a different path in the last uh, few years. So, um, but he begins, and this is again is Michael Vlahos. Um, and he is a, he used to teach at the Navy War College. Now I think he teaches at Johns Hopkins, but he begins, a, a Georgetown Institute poll finds that two-thirds of us believe that we are edging closer to the brink of a civil war. Yet Americans cannot properly analyze this gathering storm. We lack a framework, a lexicon, and the historical data from other civil wars to see clearly what is happening to us. Here's a quick template for how we might more usefully decipher how this nation gets to another civil war. First of all, we don't have a nation. We have a federal republic. And a federal republic was supposed to avoid civil war. The problem is we've worked within this framework of a nation, of a national government. And that's why we've had war, at least why we had war in 1861. Lincoln believed you could not separate a federal republic. You can. I mean, the founding generation completely believed it. You could separate the federal republic without war. You didn't have to have it. But Lincoln decided you had to have it, right? So, um, so he asked some questions. One, what is civil war? Two, why do political constitutional orders sometimes break down rather than simply transform in response to change? Three, how is violence essential to constitutional and political resolution? And four, how close is the U.S. to such a breakdown and its consequences? So a lot of stuff going on here, so let me, let me get into this first. And we're going to answer, well, I'm going to address these four questions and if I agree with him or not on, on his conclusions. First, what is a civil war? He says, Lejos says, civil war is at root a contest over legitimacy. Legitimacy, literally the right to make law, is shorthand for the consent of the citizens and political parties to abide by the authority of a constitutional order. Civil war begins when this larger political compact breaks down. Now, first of all, legitimacy is not literally the right to make law. Legitimacy is the consent of the governed. It's not the right to make law. It's the consent, the government having consent. This is how we conceptualize liberty or how our, our, uh, liberty and also legitimacy in the American political order. 
the government might look at it as the, as the right to make law, but we consider legitimacy in our political system the consent of the people for the government to operate. So if the people of the state of Alabama said that we adhere to this government and not that government, you are consenting to that government. You're giving that government legitimacy, not the right to make law. It's the right to function as a legislative body. This is what Jefferson said in the Declaration. Legislative powers are incapable of annihilation. Why? Because he's talking about consent. So legitimacy is consent. It's not necessarily the right to make law. It's the right to simply exist as a legislative body. That is legitimacy. It's where the people put their emphasis on a legislative body. So he continues, Civil war means that there is a functional split within the source of legitimacy between two parties, each of which was formerly part of the old constitutional order. Thus, each can claim that it represents the source of new legitimacy and the right to define a new or reworked constitutional order. Well, this is not true. At least not in the American order. Now, you could say that this is the case. Civil war, by definition, is the uh, process by which two factions seek to control the means of power in a central authority. Right? So if, if one side is fighting to control the U.S. government and the other side is fighting to control the U.S. government, within that certain constitutional order, the, the same constitutional order, well, that would be a civil war. But when one side says, we're out, we're no longer part of this legitimate order, well, that's something entirely different. That is a war for independence. It's not a civil war. That's a war for independence. We've had two of those. One in 1775 to 1783, and one from 1861 to 1865. Now, the old order, whether it was the parliament and the king, or the king and the congress, and of course, I know it's the president, but the king and the congress, the old order says, no, you can't leave. We don't recognize self-determination. But it's not a civil war because, in neither case, the American colonists in 1775 were not seeking to control the parliament. They were not seeking to overthrow the king. That would be a civil war. The English did have a civil war in the 17th century because it was a fight over control of the parliament and the monarchy, whether they're going to have a monarchy or not. This is where the roundheads defeated the cavaliers in the English Civil War. That was a civil war. What we saw in 1775 to 1783 was not. And in fact, the British recognized that. People like William Pitt said, look, sever this part to save the empire. It's not really fight. We, we still have the empire if they leave. It doesn't, it doesn't go away. They weren't trying to take over the parliament. In 1861, those who opposed the war in the north in particular were saying, look, just let them go. We still have the Congress. We still have the presidency. We still have the Supreme Court. We still have all the financial houses. We still have everything. We don't need to fight a war to keep these people there because they're not fighting to take over the presidency. They've let us have it. So when people say to me, 
Well, I mean, the Civil War, the war ended the government. It didn't end anything. The United States government still continued to exist. That's a cop-out. And essentially, this is what Vallejos is saying here. So he continues, hence civil war becomes a struggle in which one party must successfully assert a successful legitimate order, to which the opposing party must eventually submit. No, no, no. Well, I mean, yes, that's true, but not in the American system because he gets into American examples. So, yeah, if we're fighting over control of the center, right, if we're fighting, if, if the South was fighting to topple Abraham Lincoln, that would have been a civil war. We're going to put our guy in power, but that's not what they were doing. They had their own order. And they didn't care what happened in the North. So he continues, this is above all a contest over constitutional authority. Well, for in the American side, for, for one, yes, for the North, they were trying to control the South. The South is saying, you can do what you want. We don't care. Inasmuch as civil war happens over, after constitutional breakdown, it means that resolution must be reached not only outside of a now formal legal framework, but also unrestrained even by long-standing political customs and norms. Extra-constitutional force is now the deciding factor, which is why these struggles are called civil wars. But then he gives the Americans example. The Americans are most familiar with, such, with our own such battles from 1775 to 1783 and 1861 to 1876. So he continues. So this is, this is just sad. Now, the last part of it, the reconstruction you could say was a fundamental transformation of the united states and was there violence in the south um yes there was violence in the south um could you say that that was a ruling party enforcing its will on the south well yes so in that particular case reconstruction could certainly if you say that's the case then it would have been a, a war, a civil war in that way. So I could actually buy that argument because it is a recreation of America. But not the 61. You'd have to actually begin in 65 then. That was an entirely different process. So he gives examples. For example, Parliament's intolerable acts stripped Massachusetts of its governing legitimacy, leading to armed resistance to parliamentary authority, to legitimacies at war. It didn't strip the Massachusetts of his governing legitimacy, not according to Jefferson. Massachusetts still had his governing legitimacy because the people decided they were just going to follow the general court or the Continental Congress, whatever. They, they're not, they didn't get stripped of their legitimacy. No, they still had it because in our idea, legitimacy is the consent of the governed. So he's operating from a very strange position here, an anti-American position, in fact, I think, which is the, the thing. In, the 18th, in 1860, the election of Abraham Lincoln convinced Southern electorates that the incoming Republican administration would strip them of their way of life. The slave states could only accept a constitutional order that fully supported slavery. Well, Lincoln said he fully supported slavery and the states had already existed. See, here, here he's getting into some very strange historical revisionism. In fact, Lincoln was certainly behind the Corwin Amendment, which was actually the Lincoln Amendment, which would have said that slavery would have existed in perpetuity in the South. So... Uh, where is the idea that the U.S. government didn't fully support slavery? It doesn't exist. The only legitimacy lay in slaveocracy. And I didn't click on this link. He's got a link here. I should have probably clicked on that. Um, it's taking us out to uh, uh, 
Bensel's Yankee Leviathan, which is an interesting book. Uh, while the North, for its part, would not, as Lincoln declared, accept the nationalization of slavery. Um, okay, so if you're saying Lincoln would not accept the nationalization of slavery, meaning that he wouldn't accept extension of slavery in the territories. I've already done a podcast on why slavery. Um, I'm not going to get into that here, but this is a little bit off when it comes to what happened here. What happened was that the South decided it was going to have its own government. <clears throat> For whatever reason, it was self-determination. They elected, they seceded from the Union in popularly elected conventions in larger numbers, larger majorities than that which supported the American War for Independence. Then they formed their own constitution with their own president, their own Congress, their own court systems, and they simply said, this is now our central authority. So that's legitimacy in that they're just saying, we're not fighting, we're not, we don't want to be part of your system anymore. We have our own system. So this is a war for independence. It's not a civil war. That definition is does not apply to the United States. We've never had a civil war in the United States. Now, you could say in some of the states, maybe like Missouri or Kentucky or some of these areas where you certainly had two factions vying for control of that state government, you could say there actually was a civil war, but not in the, in the sense that we had uh, fight for the control of the central authority. That never happened. That never happened. All right, but before I get into that, I'm going to take a break for a second. I'll come back with some of his other points. I'll see you in just a couple of minutes. All right, we're back, um, and we're back with this piece by Michael Vallejos on Civil War. And he has a couple of other uh, sections here that I want to get into. It won't take me as long to get through these. Um, because I spent a lot of time on that definition of civil war, which I think is right, but wrong in the application to the American system. So he gives this long discussion of why do some constitutional orders break down rather than transform? He says, our political stability is dependent on the tenure of periodic party systems. Legitimacy flows from the give and take of a two-party relationship. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it's, his definition of legitimacy is so wrong. American party systems have had dominant parties or states. In the first party system, four of the first five presidents were slaveholders from Virginia. Slaveholders. Oh, they were also, by the way, from the founding generation. And, um, you know, the most important generation, regardless of whether they're slaveholders or not. Um, so in Washington, of course, said we don't need parties. Now, Jefferson firmly believed in factions. Uh, but the idea was that uh, originally that we would all just be Republicans, lowercase r. We would have a Republican order. Washington and you know, saying, look, we, we don't need these Federalists and Republicans, and that would be dangerous for America. So um, you could say it's the first party system, uh, but the fact that he throws in this slaveholders thing is, you know, it's, it's just silly. This shouldn't, I can't believe that the American conservative prints this kind of stuff. But anyways, it, it might as well get this printed on, I don't know, Vox or something. Uh, the second party system was more balanced between Democrats and Whigs, but broke down in the 1850s when the Whigs up and vanished, with party stability disappearing with them. Uh, the Whigs just upped and vanished. Well, sort of. I mean, the Whigs... Many Whigs went into the Democrat Party. Many some went to the Republican Party. The, the, the ideas there was they were still there. I mean, Lincoln was still a Whig essentially. So was 
Alexander H. Stevens, for example. They were still Whigs, regardless of what their party affiliation was. Uh, the new GOP dominated the third system, 6-2, to two, with one of the Democrats impeached. Equally, the fourth was also Republican, 6-1, to one, with a Republican third party challenge electing the only Democrat. FDR's fifth party system put Democrats in office for 32 or 48 years, with both GOP administrations governing within a New Deal worldview. Uh, many thought that, that Reagan's electoral wa- wave signaled a six-party system, yet it failed to take root. After 1992, the parties have altered presidencies every eight years, and with each successing administra- succeeding administration, I'm sorry, the political milieu has grown yet more rancorous and divided. There is no relationship between parties now, save as sworn enemies, let alone as system. Situa- situation resonates with the 1850s. When Collegial understandings between the democracy and the Whigs evaporated. A new opposing party appeared suddenly and as an enemy. No other relationship was possible. So he's saying this is all because of the Democrats that the system broke down. Why isn't it because of the Republicans that the system broke down? Why is not the Republican the antagon- the Republican Party the antagonistic party? Because it was the antagonistic party. When you had the Whigs and the Democrats, the situation remained stable, but the creation of the Republican Party created the dangerous situation. It would be like a third party coming out now and you have purely sectional in nature, by the way, where just one faction, one one area controls the government or has the potential to do it. Well, that's going to create a tremendous amount of, of uh, angst among the electorate because they're not going to be represented anymore. He continues, hence a party system ending without a consensual replacement means that long-standing customs and norms that undergird constitutional relationships are quietly paired away. In other words, well before legal confrontations over legitimacy, the erosion of informal rules sets up adjudicating crises over formal rules. This was a feature of the final deterioration in Congress before 1860, marked by brawls on the floor of the House and a bloody assault in the Senate. Dismantling a web of political relationship precedes the dismantling of constitutional legitimacy. Um, yeah, I mean, look, uh, the, um, the fact is we had a very violent political electorate for most of American history. It's not just in the 1850s. And it's not just the bloody assault in the Senate. I mean, why was, and we could get into all this, why was Preston Brooks, why did he believe he had to defend the honor of his people? because of the language being used by the other side. Um, And it was an insult. It was honor. Preston Brooks beat up Charles Sumner because Charles Sumner was making fun, not just of the South, but of his, his uncle, right? He was personally attacking him. It wasn't just about what he was saying about the South. It was his personal assaults on a family member. And Charles Sumner thought he could get away with that. He didn't understand. That doesn't go well in the South. So he continues, How is violence essential to constitutional and political resolution? Violence is the magical substance of civil war. If, by definition, political groups and opposition have also abandoned the legitimacy of the old order, then a successor constitutional order with working politics cannot be birthed without violence. I don't buy this. Not if you believe in self-determination. We didn't have to have war in 1861. We didn't have to have war in 1775. If William Pitt had had his way, we wouldn't have had war in 1775. If the peace Democrats 
had had their way in the North, we wouldn't have had war in 1861. Lincoln would not have sent the troops into the South. He would not have tried to provision Sumter. Just would have, I mean, we didn't have war when Buchanan was in office. This is the thing that always gets me. We didn't have war when Buchanan was in office. What created the hostility? Well, Lincoln saying that he was going to enforce the laws and everyone knew that meant, well, I'm going to collect those tariffs. I'm going to, I'm going to keep these, I'm not going to sell any property this to the South. I'm not going to do anything like that. We are going to maintain by force, if necessary, the what we conceive to be the constitutional order. And the South is saying, we don't, you don't have legitimacy anymore. We have our own government. So the consent of the governed is ruling here. We don't consent to your government. But we're not tr trying to take over your government, which is what a civil war actually is. We're just trying to have our own. Lincoln is saying you can't do that. So he's operating as the British operated in, eight, in uh, 1775. He says, hence violence is the only force that can bring about a new order. This is why all memorable civil wars and all parties enthusiastically, enthusiastically embrace violence. No, they didn't. Davis didn't enthusiastically embrace violence. He asked, please leave us alone. There's no enthusiasm there. Now, once the war began, certainly there was enthusiasm because they thought that it would free the, the South from an illegitimate power. Because they believed they were fighting for the principles of the founding generation, self-determination, etc. Cetera, et cetera. This is why there was some talk, we need a declaration of independence. Now, you can look at another... Is, is Texas a civil war? Was there a civil war in Texas between the Texas Americans, the Texians, and the Mexican government? Was that, was that a civil war? Was that a war for independence? Under this definition, that would be a civil war. But it wasn't. It's a war for independence. Right? So his, his definition doesn't fit. The way he's defining it here. The way he's, he's outlining it. The character of civil war is existential. The breakdown of the old order forces frightening prospects on society. If constitutions represented a collective source of authority, and its violent replacement are suddenly two opposing and, and uh, two opposing pretenders, each crying for both allegiance and punishment. Moreover, one party's victory is the inevitable loss of the other's way of life. Hence, in such conflicts, the entire society must choose sides, and it is an all-or-nothing choice. This is because I mean, if you look at that, then the the war in eighteen sixty one was not. The North wouldn't have lost anything. Wouldn't have lost anything. There's no loss of li way of life for the North. They would have continued exactly as they did before. So, again, it's, it doesn't fit to America. What he is describing here is not a civil war in what we've had before. The British wouldn't have lost anything by losing the colonies. William Pitt made the point. We're not losing anything. We can still trade with these people, still make money. It doesn't matter. In civil war, perhaps the greatest violence in the heart is the aggressive coercion to join a warring cause. War becomes a great mutual ritual of resolution between enemies, once brothers. Here, long-standing customs and norms paradoxically come right into play. While old political norms may have been discarded, old conflict norms again take center stage. If there is to be a war, certain expectations, even hallowed traditions come into play. How battle should be formed, and also, too, the pathways battle resolves. Hence, the Cousins War of 1775-1861 clearly took its Battlefield cues from the English Civil War and followed the rituals, not only a formal battle, but also the norms and standards for victory and defeat. 
Uh, likewise, the Confederacy, three generations later, explicitly declared itself a glorious cause cut from the same cloth as the Declaration of 1776. Um, our antique civil wars were not bound to formal rules, yet somehow they held to well-etched bounds of expectation. Again, here he's saying that there's, well, because there's standards, we got this you know, American War for Independence, with the Cousins Wars, that's another, he's calling this another name for the American War for Independence. I don't buy it, right? They might have used some, some old language, but it's a completely different situation. Today's America no longer embraces a national landscape of an industrial lockstep battlefield. Think Gettysburg D-Day. Our next civil war, as social media so unclearly reminds us, will enact its violence on a battle campus of equal pain, if yet if less blood. Yet there will be much blood. However, it will take form like the gathering chaos of our world. Um, so he's saying we may not go to actual blows over this, but there's something going on here. And he brings up, a, that first sentence is essential. Today's America no longer embraces a national landscape of an industrial lockstep battlefield. Um, that nationalism is a faux creation because we never had an American nation from the beginning. It didn't exist. Lincoln fabricated it in 61. There was some talk about nation before when nation, even Jefferson used this at times. But uh, we didn't have it. We had a federal republic and that federal republic could absorb differences between sections and peoples, which... Jefferson said that New Englanders were strange. These are strange people. Uh, I mean, everyone recognized there were differences. Even when the Constitution was being written, it was recognized there were differences. But after the war, and then particularly after World War II, there was a period of time for maybe about 20 years that you had this Surge of American nationalism. At 1941 to perhaps 1963 or 64, really up into the time maybe of the Vietnam War. Right to about the Vietnam War, you had the surge of American nationalism. I think the Vietnam War undermined all of that because what people realize is that we're getting into an American empire now. It's completely different. And there was an us versus them mentality. And I think the left helped create a lot of that. Um, and they, they helped magnify it. It had always been there, but they were really magnifying it. Um, and so for about 20 years, this American nationalism, we had a closed off political, socioeconomic order. Um, immigration was pretty much uh, stagnant until the 1960s. There really wasn't a whole lot of that. Uh, there was a rally around the flag. Um, you know, people were flying U.S. flags. They never did a lot of that stuff before. I mean, it was a different type of climate, and we still operate in this framework that we're still living in World War II. But we don't. We just saw Bernie Sanders the other day post something about the Second Bill of Rights. I mean, this is this. They don't have any new ideas. So finally, he says, how close is the U.S. to such a breakdown and its consequences? He says, American constitutional order has not yet broken down yet. Constitutional legitimacy still rules. Recent tests of legitimacy confirm this. A presidential impeachment in the 1990s did not lead to a conviction in a trial, nor did anyone expect it. The Supreme Court decided in a contested presidential election in 2000, and the decision was everywhere accepted. 2016, in contrast, was bitterly accepted. Yet even the relentless force to depose the president that followed through a special prosecutor was spent by the spring of 2019. Well, I don't think it has. I mean, look, they haven't spent this yet. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, it, it's not over. Yet if, if these are tests of robust legitimacy, then we are hardly 
They're hardly reassuring. A daily torrent of unfiltered evidence suggests that our constitutional order is fissuring before our eyes. That we have skirted constitutional crisis for the past quarter century is no reassurance, but rather an alarm of continuing erosion. Each new test is yet more bitterly contested and still less resolved. Today, two irreconcilable visions of American life believe that they can continue only if they own the whole order. So, here is the key. It's nationalism is the problem. And the the two situations are, look, you can have your parliament, you can have your king, you can have your king, you can have your congress. We just want our own thing. Yet ours has been a shared constitutional order. As we witnessed from 1860 to 76, it must proceed as a consensual and joint party system. It cannot exist through single party ownership. Single-minded drive toward its goal, especially now by blue state Democrats, has embittered and brittled our constitutional order. Excuse me. And is creating the basis for a full-scale legitimacy crack-up. Here's what it might look like. Um, so he's blaming the Democrats uh, for this. And I think that there is something to that. But the, also the Republicans and their search for nationalism and to control the whole. And not just saying, look, let's think about this in a different way. Now he gives four scenarios here. A contested election that court... Decisions fail to resolve. Supreme Court legitimacy has eroded in three years since Bush v. Gore. Today, a court decision that is rejected by nearly half the nation would not, would not only effectively drain its authority, but also leave the U.S. no final arbitral governance. Of course it would. You have the states. I mean, having the Supreme Court reduced in authority would be absolutely fantastic. Democrats' court packing would certainly abet this. There are talks about Democrats just piling in Supreme Court justices. If they control the Congress, guarantee they're going to try to do it. If they win the 2020 election and they still control the Congress, I can guarantee you they're going to create Supreme Court, uh, uh, more Supreme Court uh, positions, and they will put judges on there to get rid of the 5-4 legitimate, the 5-4 split, right? So uh, they're going to do it. They're going to add, you know, two judges probably, and they'll appoint two, and they'll get then to 6-5. So they can just win every decision, you see. Um, I, I think that there is some there is some fear in that. Declaration of a pre or post election state of emergency as commander in chief, the executive can temporarily assume extraordinary powers. No, it can't. No, it can't. Only if the Congress says so. We have witnessed such moments as recently as nine eleven. What if the emergency had a domestic focus, such as a coup d'état within the government itself? What if this was the refusal of Congress to accept such an executive order or even the continued tenure of the president? Well, I mean, that would certainly be a major constitutional crisis because that would break down every function of the... I mean, you'd have to essentially say the Constitution is no longer in effect, even for the commander-in-chief to assume extraordinary powers. Um they don't they don't exist in the constitution. So just by suggesting that we've already lost the constitution. Declaration of a pre or post election state of emergency. Oh, I just got into that. Excuse me. Uh state nullification of federal policy, laws or executive decisions. State nullification indelibly tied to another civil war casts a long shadow. Why? Why was state nullification why was that tied to another civil war? Um it doesn't have to be. In fact, it's the only peaceful remedy to all of this. By states saying we're not going to enforce it, we're not going to enforce unconstitutional laws. It's trying to preserve the constitutional order, not break it down. This is what Calhoun said. This is what Jefferson said. We're trying to preserve the Constitution, not destroy it. 
States are selective in nullifying executive decisions in federal law, like blue states with sanctuary cities and legal marijuana. Well, they're unconstitutional. So, of course, they would. They're no law. This is the American tradition. This is where uh, Vlahos doesn't understand American history in that way, or at least American legal history in that way. What beleaguered red states defied federal gun confiscation or exercise of religion by calling up state militia and mobilizing state defense forces? Well, nullification doesn't have to work that way. The people just refuse to just ignore it, right? You don't have to call up state defense forces. I mean, this guy is just, I mean, this is hyperbole. It's awful. The issue here is not what if, but rather when. It is not about the authenticity of conflict scenarios, but rather how the how contingencies we cannot now predict might bring us to a breaking point. Already warring sides of heart in their hearts, so they will do almost anything in order to prevail. The great irony is that mutual drive to win, either to preserve their way of life or make their way of life the law of the land, means that the battle has already become a perverse alliance. Today they refuse to work together in the rusting carapace of old constitutional order. Yet nonetheless, they work shoulder to shoulder together to overthrow it. For both sides, the old order is the major obstacle to victory. Hence, victory is through overthrow. Only when constitutional obstacles are toppled can the battle of light for light and truth begin. Um, yeah, I, look, I, I think that some of this, again, is hyperbole. I don't agree with his conclusions. I don't agree with his definition of civil war and what's actually happening. If we have, I mean, I could see it if we're trying to fight it. But if we're talking about nullification, that's not civil war. That is, or independence, that's not civil war. That's independence. That's something completely different. Nullification is the preservation of the constitutional order, the original constitutional order. So... This piece was interesting, and I, I wanted to get into it because of his discussion of legitimacy. These are things I bring up, by the way, in some of my McClanahan Academy courses, my constitutional class, uh, my, my War for Southern Independence class. I mean, I talk about this issue over and over again. So take those classes. You get more of this. I get into this stuff in more detail. So anyways, hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I will see you next time.